getting a group of people together and seeing how sometimes that group can just achieve like super abundantly more than the people in that team. And other times you get like the all-stars together and it just falls apart. Egos rip the whole thing to shreds and you go like, that should have been so beautiful. What was a part of it? And if I look back on the four decades of my life, that's been a thread that has always intrigued me. I love reading books about the startups that have made it and kind of how did it happen? And oh, think about how that would have felt to grow out this sort of billion dollar startup that's taken over the world. I love watching documentaries like Chasing the Sun or Two Sides, where you get inside the Springbok camp. There are a lot of F-bombs thrown around, but, but generally the team is really inspired to kind of go out there and change the world. Or how about your, your life and your experiences, whether it's colleagues at work or maybe your family environment or, or just friendship circles you're a part of. There's just something about being part of a group of people that just get a little bit of heaven on earth, right? And the bit of scripture Neil could just read is Jesus Christ calling a bunch of his apprentices and they go up a mountain and he teaches them, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And in a way, it's like the sports documentary makes its way to the, to the crucial conversation Jesus has. Less F-bombs than Russie, but just as impactful in terms of helping to shape a group of people to understand who they are and what life's about. He lays, he lays down the divine conspiracy in many ways. That's the title of a book Dallas Willard wrote, The Divine Conspiracy. And I bought it from a secondhand kind of like one of those trestle table things in Claremont, and it totally rocked my world. Because I'd been interested in teens and people my whole life, but this was a description of what Jesus had in mind when he spoke about the kingdom, when he spoke about you and I, and when he spoke about a vision for our lives before we die. Life before death. This was the message he spoke about more than anything else, was the kingdom of God. And this passage of scripture, salt and light, is at the heart of it because it explains what Christ followers are, what makes them distinct. And if we're going to live out the kingdom, we're going to live out the divine conspiracy of what Jesus had in mind, you would do well to read this. And so I'm trusting that we, although we're looking at a snippet now, you're going to want to, before your head hits the pillow tonight, go back and read from the beginning, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and just let it soak into you. Let it think, man, what would it have been like to be on that mountain listening to Jesus? What would it have been like now, 2,022 years later, to see the very people that he invested this message into turn the world upside down, that they were going to be salt, that they were going to be light? And having, having read that, I hope that already the kind of God's chiropractor will be at work in us to align both our heads, our hearts, and our hands with, with the kingdom of God and what he has in store for you and I. So the structure for five weeks, we could spend a long time in the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, but we're just going to look at it for five weeks. We're going to be looking at salt and light for two weeks. I'm going to be up here looking at what Jesus wants us to get about this, these metaphors of salt and light describing us. And then we're going to be looking in particular at what Jesus has to say about treasure and our hearts and our relationship with money and finance, which I think is just such an important topic to get on top of, especially as I look at this room and, and the life that we've got ahead of us. If we don't get that right, Jesus knows we can head for disaster. And so it's only five weeks, but man, what, 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 what substantial stuff we're going to cover. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to put my cell phone up. Can you believe this? My cell phone number, um, I'm going to say it maybe, and then it'll go up. It is 074-196-2164. So why am I giving you my number? Because I'm keen this week to hear any questions you have 
on these passages? Anything you've always pondered? You've kind of said, Paul, I get it, but Jesus missed this, or I'm still struggling with this. I'd love clarity on that. My number, 0741962164. Dangerous, I know, dangerous to give it, but there it is. There it is, and I really do want to invite you to send through those questions. And in life groups, you're going to ponder this passage. Get your best of and send it to me. I'd love to incorporate a deep dive next week. And what we're actually saying is, that, Paul, I get Jesus, I love Jesus, but what about this or what about that? I'm keen to hear from you, and that'll be next week as we want to dwell a little bit longer on what it means to be salt and light. Okay, so the structure for today, we've already heard the passage, and it's as follows. The call to distinction. This call to be in salt and light, and then really spending some time on what Jesus meant by salt and light, and why are those his predominant metaphors? And then finally, a question I hope you ask every Sunday, which is, so what? You know, so what? What does this mean for us today? And as I said, in life groups this week, we're going to gather, we're going to meditate on the scripture, we're going to really try and apply it to our lives and go deeper. So, Jesus starts with this call to distinction. He, he speaks about what's known as the Beatitudes, he kind of speaks about how how, how it looks to be following Christ. And then he describes the very nature of those that are going to follow him. And we read it there, the call to be distinct. You are the salt of the earth. And if you think about salt, salt is by definition chemically different. It's, as your science teacher would have reminded you, sodium chloride, remember? And, and, and sodium chloride is different to any other compound around. By its definition, salt is salty. You don't go to Woolworths and find the non-salty salt flavor right? That, that by definition doesn't exist. If salt isn't salty, it's not salt. It's something else. You can get diet-free Coke. You can get sugar-free Coke. You can get all those things. You can modify all that stuff, but you just can't modify salt. By its essence, it is salty. That's what makes it salty. That's the distinction that we need to make. Otherwise, it's not good for anything. And then we look at light. Light also by definition is not darkness. You don't have a, ah, oh, the amazing not light light bulb, right? That would again not be a light bulb. That would be something else. Although I have bought a few of those energy saver bulbs, which might not even have bothered, right? When you turn them on, you're like, are they on? Are they even on? You know, we kind of South Africans, we're like, oh, those things, those things might save energy, but they don't give light. Okay. So by their essence, salt has to be salty. Light has to be light. If it's hidden, what's the point? And this might seem like an obvious point at the beginning, but it really is important to be made. And I want to dive into what Martin, uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, preached for many years ago, when he spoke in particular around around the salt metaphor, a uh, quote will appear on the screen. He said, the very characteristic of saltness proclaims a difference. For a small amount of salt in a large medium is at once apparent. And unless we are clear about this, we have not even begun to think correctly about the Christian life. The Christian is essentially different from everybody else. There's a call to be distinct. There's a call to distinction here which straight away hopefully hits you slightly different. You're going, does that mean we're better than everyone else? Does that mean we, we lord it over others? What do you mean to be distinct? I hope also you start thinking in your mind through some moments in your life where you've been distinct, when you've removed yourself from the herd. Those aren't always the most pleasant moments. I think of my life in standard eight, getting, racket, uh, getting acne all over everywhere, basically. You guys know the draw. And having to go on, on Rakitan. And because I was on Rakitan, at the time, it was very unknown, so I couldn't play any sport. Everyone was like, no, we're not sure how you'll react to the medicine. So you're not. And so I sat at home playing way too much football manager instead of being part of my, my friendship group. Well, how about this story? I'm a trick dance. We arranged tables for five couples. But there were some friendship groups where there were six people. 
And that awkward moment where you saw people getting told, sorry, you're the sick person, you're not sitting at our table. And it, we can laugh at it right now, like, oh, oh those are the days. But it, when you're 17, it was like, that is probably the worst thing that can happen to you. And I'm sure if you spent a bit of time now thinking about it, sticking out, being distinct, is not always the most positive experience. Psychologists even come up with a model. It's called the SCARF model, and essentially it's named SCARF because every letter means something. But the model is essentially set up to say, hey, if you've ever noticed that fight or flight syndrome kick in in your life where you go, whoa, I'm, like, I'm, I'm emotional now all of a sudden, it's because your brain has kind of stopped thinking and it's your crocodile brain coming out. And they mention all the things that can trigger that. And the R in the SCARF model stands for relatedness. If you feel like you're no longer in relationship with people, something shifted in the relational system, you have, boom, the fight or flight syndrome triggered. When your mates are like, oh, that was a classic bri, you're like, what, what bri? <laughs> like, oh, you know, on the WhatsApp group, w what WhatsApp group? <laughs> you know, or for the younger generation, it's, just, it's, just, it's, like, it's like Snapchat, but it, it doesn't disappear. <laughs> the point is, the point is, it's not always a positive feeling to be distinct, to be left out of the herd. That's what Jesus is saying. You are going to be. You are going to be different. Now, because I'm addressing the inner city, I know that there's something in the C-point air that makes us go, Paul, you're talking about distinction like it's a bad thing. I love being distinct. <laughs> I love being distinct. I'm, I am like the person who had the Christmas tree blazer at school. You know, the one where like all the badges came down. I actually had physio for my back because I it's always kind of leaning to the one side. My startup's doing great. 2024, I've already booked leave. I got ahead of all those other suckers. I've got all the long weekends lined up. Like, I am dominating life. I love being distinct. Distinct is my jam. That's what it means to be on this side of the mountain, baby. Sunlight till the, till the early hours. I'm on weekends away. I know how to live life. But you see, here's where I want to push against that to say, when Jesus is calling us to be distinct, he's talking about us. He's talking about a collective. He's talking about a people that he's shaping and molding. He's not talking about a few brilliant individuals going, look at me, you know, handle, hashtag, you know, follow me on this handle. He's saying, no, 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 I want you to be distinct as a group, brothers and sisters, family. And too often we've taken this measure of distinction and said, oh, I'm going to be the poster boy of Christianity or the poster girl of Christianity. I'm going to be so amazing. God's just going to sit back and go, man, incredible. And Jesus said, no, that's not what I want from you. I want you to be part of my family. I want you together to be salt and to be life. In many ways, this is the incredible thing Jesus does, is he makes us salt and light. You see, I've kind of mislabeled it here by saying it's a call to distinction. It's not actually a call. It's an announcement of distinction. When you get into Christ's slipstream, when you apprentice your life to him, you become different by virtue of the fact that he is at work in your life. And so the call to be distinct is not a call to lord it over others, as we'll see later. It's actually to lay down your life and serve others. If you were a guest and you heard a group of people singing like, for this cause I'll die, part of you would be like, eh? Like, what? Like, what, what are we talking about here? Like, some, some of you would be like, what are we dying here for? But what we hopefully understand that to mean is we're so going to be radical and generous in our sacrificial love for others that we will lay down our life in service. We will be on the front lines serving during COVID, going into those wards, putting ourselves behind masks and as many things as we can, but also knowing that ultimately we could be losing our lives because we are radically committed to this call of love, to laying down our lives for others. It doesn't mean we're the only people to do it, but we're doing it because Christ has first loved us and we lay down our lives in response to what He's done. We're salt, we're light, not because we're trying to be. We are salt and light because He has made us that. 
Our sin and our rebellion has been placed on Him. His righteousness and His Spirit starts to renovate us from the inside out. And so it's so important we get this, this call to distinction. In many ways, not a call, but an announcement that if you're following Jesus, you are going to be different. You're going to be different. And now we get the opportunity to look at how are we going to be different. Salt and light are the two ways Jesus describes it. Let's read again from verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Just interesting, even in the English language, we still talk about people being salt of the earth, if they're really good people, salt of the earth. And if we say, oh, they're good for nothing, good for nothing also actually comes from this passage. And what Jesus is getting in the first metaphor of salt is he's saying, the role you're going to play as my apprentices in this world is you're going to stop things getting really bad. If you're on the scene, things can get bad, don't get me wrong, but you should be a preservative. You should be able to stop things getting really bad. Salt at that time would be rubbed into wounds and would kill some of the bacteria that would normally lead to putrefaction, that the, the flesh would get really bad or the meat would get really bad. So the salt would get rubbed in. In many ways, it was like a modern refrigeration system. It would keep meat healthier for longer, preserve it for longer, because it would kill off this ba bacteria and stop it from getting worse. Now, Jesus is telling his followers on a mountainside in the Middle East this very thing. How is history shown this to be the case? Well, there's a history professor who, who does the following thought experiment. He tells this to his, all his um, history students. He says, guys, there's an old lady coming down uh, the road. She's got lots of jewelry, fancy jewelry on her. It's late at night, no one else around. You're tempted to steal all that she has. Now, here's the question. You don't do it, but for what reason? Three reasons you could provide. First reason, you don't want to appear weak. You don't want to go in there and beat up a granny and everyone say, oh, you're the type of person that beats up a granny. So you're like, no, I don't want to do it because that would make me look weak. The second reason you don't do it is because you look at her life and you get in her shoes and you say, oh, that would be awful for her to experience that. I'm not going to do that to her. I don't want her to experience that. That could be the second reason, sort of an other-centered reason. The third reason is another reason, any other reason, you know, so not the first two. Like, what other reason would you give for not robbing the granny? Those are your three options. And most people in his class would say, the reason I don't rob the granny is because of point number two. I think about what that would mean for her. I consider the impact on her, and I don't do it for that reason. It's something that is called other-centered morality. And what's interesting is that that did not exist before Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It would have seemed bizarre to anyone in an honor and shame culture to have that as the reason. The main reason in the world was reason number one. The strong were strong, and they didn't want to appear weak by beating up the weak. You see, if you went and took out a weak person, it would be like, wow, why did you have to do that? You're obviously not as strong as you think you are because you're having to beat up the weak person. Strong people should beat up strong people and prove how strong they are. That was the prevailing ethic at the time, but Jesus came along and taught something completely different. He spoke about people, male and female, made in the image of God, and therefore precious, unrepeatable, and therefore needing to be treated with dignity and care, a radical other-centered morality. The word human rights used for the first time was Gregory of Nicaea, a well-known theologian, actually thinking through the implication of what Jesus taught and then saying, hey, there should be these inalienable rights to each and every person, regardless of status, regardless of gender, regardless of culture, regardless of wealth, they are made in the image of God, and for that reason, human rights came about. 
Now, I could go on about this, and there's a great talk uh, Pastor Tim Keller gives to the British Parliament in 2019. He spoke about what it means to be salt to the MPs. Theresa May was the pre uh, Prime Minister at the time, and she was in the audience. And he basically just schooled Britain on, on where they got a lot of their institutions. Where did the hospitals come from? Where did the schools come from? Where did the universities come from? It came from people saying, I'm called to be distinct, and I'm called to massage God's preservative into this world, and I'm called to be radically other-centered, to lay down my life for others. And so many NGOs and so many institutions have been built up by those who felt this, this privilege of being salt in culture, and they lived it out in their lives. Of course, the church has got a checkered past. I'm not arguing that everything that's been done has been glorious. That's not the case at all. But at the same time, when you look at history, you see people taking this call to being distinct and being salt, to preserving life seriously. So that's the first metaphor Jesus uses. And how cool that even today, we can grind salt over our food and we can taste it on our tongues and think, man, this is something of what Jesus was teaching them back in the day that I still can have. Uh, I love that. Reaching across the hands of time, we still have these metaphors to guide us. The second one we have is light. Let's read it again from verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. It gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so if salt was this kind of preservative, light is something different. Light throughout the time was seen as a powerful symbol of truth. You know, let your light shine. Bring light, the ultimate disinfectant, you know. Bring things out of darkness into the light. And of course, what makes this so thrilling is that Jesus Christ himself declared, I am the light of the world. Let's read it together from John 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Again, in full humility, I hope we arrive as Christ follows those of us that are tonight and realize the only reason we call to be light is because of our relationship with him. It's because of the radical grace and the initiating love of God in our lives that we can then reflect light towards others. God has come, we've accepted him on his terms, and now we get to walk not in darkness, but in light. Jesus, notice what he calls us to and and apprentices his whole life as he says, follow me. It's something he always said. There it is in John again, after declaring that he's the light, he, has, he says, whoever follows me, whoever apprentices me, whoever you know, gets, gets with this program of hungering and thirsting for righteousness, wanting to know true reality, true life, wanting, wanting to know the substance, the essence of things, not taking superficial answers, but wanting to dig deeper. Whoever does that, whoever follows me, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's why so many schools and so many universities and these institutions have been set up, because of this pursuit for truth. Because there was a God who created things, therefore there must be order and there must be light to be discovered. And it wasn't just Jesus that taught this. Paul picked up the metaphor in Ephesians 5. He said, for at one time you were in darkness, but now you are the light in the Lord. If you're sitting here tonight, you're saying, Paul, you don't know my story. You don't know how much darkness I'm a part of. You don't know how much darkness is still in me, let alone things I've been a part of. And all of you guys seem like you've got it all together. You've kind of, this building has been around for a while. You guys have probably been enjoying your Sundays here for a long time. No, that's not, that's not how I understand the work of God to be. There's no pre-qualification. This is what Paul said, remember, at one time you were in darkness. Not some of you, not a few of you, but all of us were in darkness 
but now you are light in the Lord. Jesus wants to take us out of darkness into light. And I've been reflecting on my life, how often it actually is packaged, the marketing is totally different, right? Darkness comes along and says, I am fantastic, try me out, party in the darkness. And you go for it, and it over-promises and under-delivers. You're left going like, man, what was that about? It, it never came through, but maybe the next party, maybe the next thing, maybe the next thing. And light, honestly, the marketing is terrible. You look at light, you're like, seriously? That looks so small. That looks like lay down my life for others, love others. What? How does that work? And yet that becomes the greatest adventure of our lives. Jesus is encouraging us to follow him, not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. What does this mean for our lives today? This is so essential that we get this. This makes the biggest change to our lives, this call to being distinct and living out of kingdom in the city, both preservative and truth. Now, the final part for tonight, we ask this question, what does that mean for us today? What does that mean for us today? Verse 16 says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Just before that, he's spoken about being a city on a hill. He's given this, this picture to this group of apprentices together, not to individuals, but to a group, saying, here's what I have in mind for you. Here's the vision. Here's the team talk. Here's where we can go. We can be a city on a hill. We can, we can imagine darkness and seeing like light on the horizon out in the desert in the Middle East. Going, Whoa, look at that. That's not one light going, woo, here I am. My, this little light of mine. I'm Elijah. It's like, no, it's a city on a hill. It's, it's a group of people. And you're going, what is going on over there? And as you get closer, what do you see? You see good works. You see good works. If you look at what that means, it's works that are other-centered. It's caring for the vulnerable. It's not good works. It's like, look at my gold medal. Although if you've got a gold medal, congratulations on your gold medal. Nothing wrong with that. But what the good works are, are good works of laying down your life for the vulnerable, caring for others. Why? Because they're made in the image of God and therefore unique, unrepeatable, precious. So when they see a city on a hill, they see good works. They see a group of people taking their work very seriously and saying, how can I be part of bringing order from chaos. That's what Jesus wants me to do, bring order out of chaos, salt. And how am I bringing truth? How am I cutting through all the noise and saying, this is what's really important. Let's focus on this. Let's take ground. And I don't just do that in my work environment. I do that in my closest relationships. I walk in the light and not in darkness. I lay down my life serving others. It's in two frontiers, the innermost part of my heart and the outermost part of the earth. They will see my good works no, they will see our good works. It's exhausting to think of this as individuals, but to see it as a collective and to think, oh, they're involved in this, they're involved, oh my gosh, we're involved in so many ways, bringing salt and light to this world. And what will they do when they see those good works? They will give glory to your Father who is in heaven. They will be like, what, what is it about this love you've received? Tell me more about it. Tell me more about grace. Tell me more about Jesus. Tell me more about the righteousness that I don't deserve. And can I push on this a little bit to say, I don't think intention is enough. Because we could all leave here tonight, tonight going, man, I want that, Paul. I want salt light. Tick. I want to see good works that people give glory to God. Tick. I'm happy with that. And, and because I want that, that's enough. I have intention. 
think Jesus, when he was teaching his disciples and his apprentices, was, was wanting more than intention. He was saying, no, I want you to have skillful hands on this. I want you to assess as you go about your life. I want you thinking, am I doing good works? Am I seeing people give glory to God because of my life? And if I'm not, why not? And I'm, I've got brothers and sisters around me say, guys, is it my character issues? Is it a lack of skill? Is my thinking wrong? Is my heart in the wrong place? Uh, uh, tell me, help me, coach me. Am I in, my gifts in the wrong place? Because unfortunately, if we don't do that, something like the law of unintended consequences can be at work in our lives. And I want to give you a painful example. It's often used in the business school. It's a story involving snakes, India, and um, money. So here we go. There were a lot of poisonous snakes in India, true story, when the British arrived, and they were obviously understandably not comfortable going to bed at night with a lot of poisonous snakes out there. So they said, here's a monetary reward for every poisonous snake that gets handed in. Fantastic idea. A lot of poisonous snakes get handed in, a lot of money goes out. Everyone's happy until enterprising entrepreneurs think, hmm, a lot of money to be made here. Let me start breeding poisonous snakes. And so that's what they do. They start breeding poisonous snakes en masse. They're handing them in en masse, making a fortune. Snake trading, doing a wonderful business. The British find out about this, and they are incensed. They've been taken advantage of for how long now? And so straight away overnight, they declare no more monetary reward for poisonous snakes. Sounds like a good idea, except you've got a whole bunch of snake breeders that are now very upset with you, and they go, oh, well, there's no point feeding these snakes anymore. Sorry, lads. Open up the gates scatter, go find food for yourself. The end result is a lot of money gets spent and there are more snakes on the streets of Delhi than there were prior to the intervention. It's a famous case study of the law of unintended consequence. Our heart is in the right place, our intention is good, but the results can be devastating. Now, it's funny when it's over there and it's them from a long time ago, but how much more in our close relationships are we just getting it wrong? We're not listening to each other. We said, I know you said that, but you can't beat that, man. Just agree with me. In our workplaces, we ride over certain people and, and suck up to others. We, we get it wrong in so many different ways. What Jesus is saying here is, if salt and light would stop and say, man, it doesn't feel like I'm doing good works. It doesn't feel like I'm, and I'm not, this isn't condemnation. This is like an invitation to say, Jesus wants us to examine these things. And to say, am I missing something? See, my reflection on my life is a large part of my life, I probably looked at darkness and I went, Ish, I don't want to be a part of that. I see the downfall of it. I see all the pain. I don't want to be a part of it. But at the same time, when I look at God and I look at worshiping Him and I think of an eternity with Him and Him at the center of everything, I'm actually also not that stoked. I'm also going like, sheesh, that doesn't equip me. And so I'm actually stuck piggy in the middle. I don't want to do the darkness stuff, so I'm at the party kind of like, oh, I shouldn't be here. But then when I go to church, I'm like, oh, I don't belong here. And I'm kind of stuck, piggy in the middle, unhappy in both contexts, hoping someday something will change. And what Jesus is calling us to is saying, it's not enough to kind of go, well, I'm in the middle. He's calling us, it's an open invite to move into the kingdom of God as salt and light and to be full of His Spirit and to have our appetites changed to be, to, be, to be fully in awe of who He is and to then discover who He has made us to be and to live our lives other-centered in love for others, to receive love and to give love, to love God and to love people. It literally is as simple as that. That's what Jesus came to announce. And if I have to think about what it means for us as a group, I hope we're gonna meditate on Jesus' teaching and we're gonna get close to Him. And I hope we're gonna understand that a big part of our lives should be the pursuit of truth, should be the pursuit of reality, to say, what is it that my hands are giving themselves to? 
doesn't matter about intent. Like, what, are, what is it I'm a part of? And God, I want you to help me define reality. I want you to be at work in me. I want to more and more agree with you. I want to follow you, Jesus. I want to be in your presence. I want to hunger and thirst for righteousness. I want to be changed by you. And I want to do what you would do if you were me. And at the exact same time, I want individualism to fall. And I want to recognize that it's called to be a city on a hill. And so I'm going to bring brothers and sisters alongside me. And I want to look at the scripture with others and hear from them. And this call to be distinct is not for me alone to go and change the world and get myself sorted. It's a call for me to be part of something bigger than myself. Because on a little hillside in the Middle East 2,000 years ago, you would never have thought that was going to be the crew that we'd be talking about today in Seapoint on the other end of the world. And when the sun rose in the east and it's going to set in the west, Christians have been gathering all over this Sunday celebrating the fact that salt and light has gone out and has reached the furthest part of this world. The call to be distinct is a call that was listened to by a community of people, and it literally has changed the world. Some final good news um, before we get the band up. Martin Lloyd-Jones ended his sermon saying the following. He said, Jesus does not merely give us new teaching or new understanding of the problem. Jesus does not merely procure pardon for past sins. Jesus makes us new men and new women with new desires, new aspirations, a new outlook, and a new orientation. But above all, he gives us that new life, the life, life that loves the light and hates the darkness. No longer piggy in the middle, right? Instead of loving the darkness and hating the light. So next week, we will be answering questions. We'll be diving deeper on this. We'll be understanding more of the Spirit's role in our lives. We'll find out how it is that we become salt and light. But aren't you thrilled by this invitation? And when we grind salt on our, on our, on our uh, plate, and when we flick lights on when we can <laughs> without load shedding or the candle, I hope something of us will wash fresh here by saying, God, you've made me salt, you've made me light. This is who I am. Craigie's coming up now to lead us in worship. I'm gonna ask you to stand. And Steph's just gonna lead us in, a, in an encouragement from one of the Psalms as we respond uh, together tonight. Great. Um, yeah, I mean, as we, as we listen to this, you know, so weird that, hey, we might feel like, hey, this is another thing <laughs> kind of that, um, that we asked to do as Christ followers and as a, and as a church. And I just want to read this uh, from Psalm 127 that um, David Wright says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early. And go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep, right? It's, ama- it's just this amazing image that, um, that Christ is building his church, and he invites us to be part of it, and he says, hey, you don't have to be anxious. You don't have to carry this like it is all up to you. Um, ultimately, Jesus is inviting us as he is building his church, as he is advancing his kingdom, and it's just this call to look to him, right, just to gaze upon him and know that the Holy Spirit is, is changing your taste buds, essentially, right? And so I want to invite you as we worship just to look to him and to uh, worship him tonight.